Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni and this is the FDI podcast. After a brief pause, we are back in full swing with our monthly podcast rendezvous where we bring you insights into the latest developments in the world of foreign investment and investment promotion. Today it will all be about MIPI. The 2019 edition of the annual event in Cannes that brings together property developers and policymakers from all over the globe wrapped up last week. The whole FDI team was there. And I'm here today in our studio in London with Courtney Finger, our editor-in-chief, and Sebastian Shehadi, our global markets reporter, to discuss the main takeaways from MIPIM 2019. Welcome, guys. So uh, let's let, let's start with a with, with a B word in a way. Let's uh, let's get rid. Of, let's address the elephant in the room uh, right away. Uh, Brexit. So it looks like the higher the Brexit uncertainty, the bigger the British delegation becomes. What do you make of that? Well, I guess it has a logic in the sense that with all the turmoil and uncertainty, British locations, so cities and regions from around the UK, they really need to make the point that the UK is still open for business, they're still out there, that there are still opportunities to be had in the UK. I was obviously, you know, putting on a very brave face publicly, privately, of course, many will say that it's it's disconcerting, very hard to uh, fly the flag with so much uncertainty going on. I mean, actually, during the week, there were just constant seismic events going on in the back in the UK, yes. people checking phones to see what was being decided in Parliament. It's a very difficult environment in which to try to promote FDI. But they are definitely putting their face out there. And uh, and also from, from, from a data perspective, it's interesting because uh, um, the, the 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 picture is not crystal clear as uh, as uh, somebody would uh, would would argue. So we saw that FDI, for example, in a place like London, has remained uh, robust despite all the Brexit uncertainties. Whereas FDI outside the city and in certain sectors, like for example manufacturing or also services, has uh, declined uh, since uh, the Brexit referendum, or even more so since uh, the, the the invocation of Article 50 in uh, March 2017. But Brexit, there have been uh, there have been many studies on uh, what have been the, eff- the effect of Brexit so far. And uh, Sebastian, as far as I as far as I know, you um, there are meeting. You also met a few people that gave you good insights into what have been the effect of uh, Brexit into the commercial uh, property stock of uh, uh, of real estate in the country, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I spoke to Harris Associates, which are a key player in commercial uh, real estate in the UK. Um, they help uh, broker uh, deals from uh, domestic and foreign uh, investors. And they, they had a very positive um, message, which was that foreign interest had increased during the Brexit um, turmoil and that uh, especially Saudi, Singaporean, Hong Kong and U.S. investors were taking advantage of uh, domestic U.K. players holding off so that you know, they were able to get further down the line, so to speak, and buy prime real estate that otherwise would have been more um, competitive. Um, and also they're taking advantage of, of the, the cheaper pound, of course. So um, it, for, for, for companies like Harris Associates, this was actually, it's been great news in a way um, for, for their business. So a rather surprising um, uh, message, um, or rather one that other people might not expect. Um, another point they made was um, a little tangential this, that industrial logistics has seen a huge growth over the last 18 months. So um, as e-commerce groups continue to grow and, and as we see the likes of Deliveroo, for example, opening industrial kitchens um, across uh, London and elsewhere, 
Um, and Brexit hasn't impacted the appetite, literally, for that at all. Um, so the demand is really high for industrial logistics. Um, so th- these were two two key takeaways I got from, from Harris Associates. Right. And also because uh, if we cut through all the Brexit noise, if you may, uh, we still have a country which is uh, one of the biggest, obviously one of the world's biggest economies, but also one of the healthiest economies, despite all the uncertainties in Europe. Because if you, if you look elsewhere, uh, Italy is facing recession, uh, Western European countries, France and Germany, they are still, kind of they're, they're, they're still facing sluggish growth. Uh, so eventually the UK... Uh, it's still growing at around 1% annual, which is still remarkable for Western European standards, right? Yes, and it, it will still continue to be an attractive consumer market in its own right. Obviously, the big question marks are around access to the European market yeah. and export sectors, which are the ones where we're seeing the volatility. For companies that have an in- interest specifically just in the UK as a market in its own right, uh, Brexit actually argues in favor of putting facilities here in operations and including industrial warehousing, storage, and to put a physical footprint here in order to be able to serve the market directly from the inside rather than trying to serve it from the outside in Europe. Right, right. Okay, well, um, another major topic of discussion uh, at uh, the conference, at the event, was, uh, was uh, well, actually, this was the main theme of the event was uh, engaging uh, the future. And it was actually for me very interesting to see how different policymakers from all over Europe, but also beyond Europe, uh, engage with uh, the, the challenges and the changes that they foresee for the future of their territories. Um, one particular aspect was uh, that is becoming hotter and hotter is the effect of uh, industrial uh, industry 4.0, uh, technological and industrial disruption, uh, how this is impacting also urban planning and urban development. So we went through a post-industrial phase where uh, city authorities were would uh, would do anything to get rid of their uh, industrial archaeology in a way this kind of dismissed the big uh, industrial warehouses and um, factory production sites uh, whereas now we are seeing that uh, manufacturing is becoming sexy again uh, because of its uh, new combination with uh, old production but also new technologies and all the skills that these uh, these new technologies require so i spoke to the to the mayor and the economic development councillor of the city of uh, hanover uh, and this is what they they told me my name is Stefan Schostock. I'm the Lord Mayor and Chief Executive uh, Officer of Hanover. In the next 10 years, the digitalization process um, will be uh, stronger. And we, uh, we, we founded the project uh, Industry 4.0 in Hanover with a uh, trade fair, on the trade fair. And I think the future of the cities is with industry in the cities because uh, we have no problems with emission and, and pollution with the industry. It's not like uh, 100 years ago. You, we have new industry and we must uh, go very near to, this, um, to the um, sites of the science and we must combine um, economic and, and science and we must um, help startups to solve the problems of the cities. And, and we can be... Vorbildlich in Europa. We can be a very good example to solve the the biggest problems in in our city. That is the vision of the European culture, capital of culture. 
2025 that we show Europe in what what we can solve with digitalization, with culture, with economic um, combined with science in the cities. So, guys, do, do you buy into this idea that uh, Industry 4.0, uh, this maybe this idea, a bit oniric uh, idea of uh, manufacturing uh, becoming clean, becoming uh, almost a, a silver bullet for all the troubles uh, of our urban uh, spaces today? I guess it can't solve every problem, but what it could do if, if industry is, is cleaner and also smaller and more high-tech and therefore can be brought back in closer to the city centers, it can help stop the process of the fraying and decaying of, of a lot of town centers where, you know, you saw big facilities moving out further and further into the suburbs and therefore lack of vibrancy and activity in the, in the downtown areas, which there have always been these efforts to, to solve that by everywhere, you know, becoming a, a tech hub, which hasn't worked everywhere. So, you know, let's put a few coffee shops and then we become a hipster town yeah. and everyone's living in lofts downtown, which hasn't worked everywhere. And I think a balance is to be struck and bringing some small, nimble, clean, high-tech industry back closer to the cities could definitely give a boost to some urban redevelopment efforts. Yeah, and Seb, I know that uh, you are also working on a, on, a, on a cover story on this, but before uh, getting to that, also listen to what uh, Mr. Pere Navarro, who is the head of the uh, Free Zone in Barcelona, one of the biggest in, in Europe, well, it's, it's actually just an industrial zone because for European Union, the rules, uh, the concept of Free Zone is somehow forbidden, uh, across the union, but it's uh, it's something very interesting about the transformation of uh, their free zone uh, from typical manufacturing, industrial manufacturing, uh, to more innovative manufacturing. This is what he told me. It's a very interesting story. The origin of the free zone traces back to the main facilities of Seat. Right there in this plot of land, they started producing the Seat 600 which made cars accessible to the lower middle classes. In that moment, car manufacturing and assembly line production represented the new way to produce things. It was very innovative. We are talking of the 1950s and 60s. Now it's interesting that in the same plot of land, we go back to having an innovative experience, which is the factory of the 21st century. So, Sebastian, again, um, you have addressed uh, many of these uh, these uh, topics uh, in a, in a story that will be featured as the new cover story for the magazine coming out in a, in mid April. Do you mm -hmm. want to give yeah. uh, to give us some uh, some yeah. uh, some uh, some insights into your the main findings of your story? Yeah. So, as we see manufacturing become more and more advanced, there is a trend, but. I don't want to generalize too wholeheartedly, but there is a trend that's beginning um, where we see uh, advanced manufacturing returning to more advanced economies. So, so um, this, this is particularly evident in certain uh, sectors, subsectors of manufacturing, um, particularly the, uh, the, the fashion and, and clothes making garment industry. So the, the most obvious example has been Nike and Adidas moving some of their latest smart factories closer to their, their European, their main markets in Europe or the, or, or the States. So the, the Adidas Speed Factory came, came uh, opened in, in Germany uh, last year, and, and that's, that's very much riding on a wave of um, uh, 
customization, mass customization, and uh, consumers' desire for next day or even next hour delivery. So of course you can't you could you couldn't do that if your if your factory was in um, um, Vietnam. And and it, there's also the question of whether a country like like Vietnam, um, for example, would would have at this stage the capabilities for a a, a highly advanced smart factory with all the digital infrastructure and skilled technicians that that it require that they require. So so they're, they're, I think. Um, Nike, uh, Nike CTO uh, put it well um, two years ago at their uh, investor uh, conference in saying that we're at the beginning, at the very early stages of a nearshoring movement in certain parts of the manufacturing industry. Right. Um, there we go. And uh, one of the key technologies for this will be uh, 3D printing. And uh, I mean, I think my impression is that we have seen just like the tip of the iceberg or the potential of this technology, maybe not even the tip of the iceberg, uh, but definitely um, there is uh, an incredible potential, uh, you know, to, 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 to combine uh, 3D printing with the concept of, uh, again, customization uh, and, uh, you know, the next day, next hour uh, delivery. And this is what uh, companies like Nike and Adidas are actually testing and uh, going back to the free zone in Barcelona they are also uh, starting uh, la launching a first uh, European uh, incubator of 3D printing startups so um, very interesting developer developments there and very interesting also how to, to see how this new development fit also uh, the new visions of urban planners across Europe uh, I think that uh, this is also always meeting is also interesting because uh, you meet people from very different geographies and very different economies, uh, which face very different challenges. So whereas in Europe it's all about how how we get out of this post-industrial phase and we embrace uh, industry 4.0, uh, in places like Egypt. Uh, the discussion it's all about how we deal with a massive. Uh, demographic, uh, if you make time bomb, uh, that we are facing. Uh, Egypt is a country of 100 million people. They are projecting 160 million people in uh, 50, 60 years. And even more interestingly, uh, only 7% of the country is actually urbanized because obviously there is a massive desert uh, area. And uh, and so it's 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 a massive challenge. And uh, I met with uh, Mr. Khaled Abbas, who is the Deputy Minister for Housing uh, for National Projects, and this is what he told me. So, uh, population growth uh, 3%, which is almost 3 million. We already have a uh, strategic plan for uh, for urban development all over Egypt. The new capital was, was, was the, on this uh, strategic plan. Uh, as you know, where we can put this, uh, these people? Now we are 100 million. Within uh, 30 to 40 years, will be up to 160 to 180 million. So we have to expand our uh, urban areas uh, to live in. We are living now on uh, only 7% of our land. Uh, 93 of the population are living on this. We, uh, we, we target to make it 12% to 14% within the coming 40 years. So that's why we start to, to think about the new cities all around uh, Egypt, uh, from uh, starting from the Mediterranean uh, down to the south, to Aswan. So the new capital is one of these new cities we are looking for. Egypt is investing 45 billions into its uh, new capital.
And this is just one of uh, something like 15 new cities and 30, 30, 23 urban uh, revitalization programs. Uh, Courtney, you have been uh, spending quite a lot of time with the, Egypt, the Egyptian delegation. You moderated a few panels uh, with them at uh, MIPIM. Uh, what's your feeling about their plans and uh, how they're handling uh, these challenges? Well, the, the scale of it, when you compare to the types of projects that we talk about, for example, in Western Europe is, is a completely different level. As you said, there's massive population growth that has to be considered. And so that means a need to make older cities more better fit for purpose and more, more future proof to accommodate to this trend, but also to create entire new cities. So there are a lot of challenges within that, but it It, a lot of exciting possibilities as well, because one of the things that was talked about regularly in, in the panels at MIPM was that when you build a city completely from scratch, it gives an opportunity to, to kind of do things right the first way and to make use of international expertise and to really implement best practice in terms of smart cities, technologies and, and urban planning. So I think it's really one to watch. I mean, it's an ambitious plan, but but things are happening and they're, they're plowing ahead with it. And so it's also these new cities tend to be a kind of testing lab for again, how cities how cities will function and be designed in the future. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's also interesting to see uh, countries that are sort of like torn uh, in between, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge of uh, uh, regeneration and opportunities of uh, building everything from scratch. I think that a good example for this is Turkey. Uh, and again, there are in Istanbul and is mostly Istanbul always has a big, big, big uh, uh, representation. And uh, they, over the past few years, they always, they've also uh, kind of flirted with with this idea of uh, uh, pushing mega projects uh, uh, to the point that uh, last year they were promoting a project for a new uh, parallel uh, Bosphorus canal, uh, which not very many people believed in, but apparently their government was was putting a lot of weight uh, behind this project. And we are seeing, uh, for example, something more feasible, the new airport, third airport uh, in Istanbul, supposed to be one of the biggest in the world, and it's having a lot of problems to, 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 to get uh, to be, you know, to actually to come to fruition. Um, and so you wonder there whether uh, it would be, what are the real opportunities of mega projects? And if, you know, the opportunity of failure, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, really taken into account. And what are, on the other hand, opportunities for a city like Istanbul of regenerating uh, what they already have, which is already a massive endowment of uh, infrastructure, for example. They already have one of the biggest airports in Europe. And uh, if you go to Istanbul city center, you understand that there, is, there are massive opportunities for regeneration. Uh, but still, obviously, uh, from, from many different perspectives, the idea of uh, building a new neighborhood is always a bit sexier than, uh, than dealing with regenerating something in a city center. That's right. And as, again, the, the, I guess the trick is to find the balance between the two. I also met with some planners of an entire new, almost city within a city in Sao Paulo. So another, you know, mega city in a, in a developing um, country where they're, isn't so much room anymore to build something new. So instead trying to make use of a space, I think where there was a, historically an old hospital and yeah. old buildings that is now being turned into a huge area for retail and tourism si, and healthcare. Si Correct. So I think again, that's another model of, of trying to, but they're not tearing down the old buildings. They're right. trying to just 
keep the shell and renovate those. So these are all the, you know, the varying models that we're seeing, you know, as, as, as large cities and, and as many countries face this um, urbanization trend and population growth. Fantastic. Well, Sebastian, a very last uh, note. You also met with uh, some expert from uh, Control Risks, who is uh, this uh, risk advisory uh, firm, um, and uh, you discussed with them uh, what are the main geopolitical risks for investors uh, in 2019, uh, what have yep. been uh, the main, uh, the main uh, issues that came out of that interview. Right. So, um, of course, these are, these are broad broad risks here. The first was the China-US trade war. Um, they believe a control risk that neither side really want to end the standoff. The Americans um, are rather enjoying the economic uh, uh, cost that, that, that uh, China is feeling. And on the other hand, China are, are, are delaying the fact that they've been given an ultimatum and it's a difficult one to take and they're happy to sort of drag their feet with that. So they believe it will go on much longer than, than, than people expect. Um, they also think it's splitting the business world into, you know, who, who will do business with the friends of the U.S., who, who will do, and, and the opposite. Um, so there's, there's that as the, the number one risk uh, for 2019. The second risk uh, for businesses is around data regulation. Um, control risks see three camps. There's the EU uh, sort of uh, uh, way, which is uh, very protective of, of privacy. Uh, data privacy. There's the U.S. Um, uh, MO, which is to, to commercialize people's data, and they see it as a very profitable business. And then the China model is is um, is one of protection from the government, so so government uh, control, so to speak. And they um, controlists believe that splitting um, businesses in terms of uh, uh, how they comply um, compliance and and where they can how how they can use data in in those respective spheres of influence. Um, the third risk is, uh, according to control risk, is U.S. political deadlock. So um, with Congress so split and the tug of war between the Capitol building and the White House um, in terms of foreign policy, it's going to be um, uh, difficult for, for, for uh, certain investors, especially in, in, in more risky environments such as take Iran um, or, or even Qatar and Saudi. Um, how do you, how do you uh, play your cards there? Um, who, who, who are you upsetting? In the U.S., it's not clear what the foreign policy is for for um, some multinationals. That will be an issue. The fourth risk was climate change. Uh, control risk believes that's far more risky than terrorism um, in terms for, for businesses. So um, they don't believe businesses are really surveying the, the future impact that, that uh, climate change is and will have on their offices and workforce, um, especially surrounding issues, um, uh, collateral damage surrounding uh, water scarcity. Um, issues that will that will arise um, and are already arising. The last risk that they identified was, um, as they put it, the return of borders, um, and Brexit being the best example of that. How will uh, companies negotiate the increase of borders, um, metaphoric and literal, um, as globalization reads, re- seems to be reaching, uh, stuttering and reaching its its limits um, of elasticity. So those are the top five risks for 2019. It's also it's also interesting to see how uh, people adjust to these risks. Uh, last year's MIPIM uh, was uh, also all about. There was a lot of talking about uh, geopolitical and political risks. Uh, 
the same risks are are out there. They, they they are the same pretty much we are facing today, like Brexit, uh, tensions between uh, between China and the U.S. and also like in domestic tensions, political tensions within the same United States. So pretty much the, the risks are the same. But to some extent, I feel people have adjusted and they 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 ran their contingency plan. They are running their contingency plans and they are looking beyond uh, these risks, right? Yes, because in a way, I mean, business always goes on. And as long as you know what the risk is and you can hedge against it and have a strategy in place, it's okay. It's, it's of course, it's always the fabled unknown unknowns and the black swans that cause the disruption, not the risk that... Right that business is aware of and can deal with. Okay, well, uh, another very exciting edition of MIPIM. I'm already looking forward to the 2020 edition, the 31st edition of MIPIM. Uh, so we will definitely catch up then in a year in a year time. In the meantime, uh, Corny Fingers, Sebastian Sciadi on the line from uh, Portugal. Thank you very much for your comments. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find all our podcasts on our website, fdiintelligence.com, and on ACAS and iTunes. Stay tuned. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.